Welcome to part two of uh, the Urgy podcast, uh, exploring the new information from the Canada Council. It's true. It's like a. Uh, have you have you watched any open box videos on YouTube? No, have tell me about them. Open boxes when you say order a piece of equipment or a toy. Yeah. It's an unboxing. Often, I think is actually the term. And then and then you record yourself. Dis- opening the box and discovering what's inside and being like, oh, well, this looks like it. Um, wow. Yeah, so there's a whole there's a whole internet genre of unboxing. Um, really? That is about, like, sharing the delight or the excitement of opening the box and finding out what's inside. I think it got to quite a, like, it was a tech thing for a while, and it goes into this is what we're doing is perhaps more of a breakdown in the right. YouTube tech stuff, which is when they right. like take their Mac and open it up and take it apart. Although in part one, and I'm sure everyone who's just yes. turned in has listened to that already, we did examine the packaging a bit at the beginning. We did talk about the packaging. We did talk about it the packaging for unboxing. quite a while actually. Yeah. It was uh, we did talk about the about the box that it came in and the instruction manual, that yeah. kind of thing. So it, it's not unlike So it's that. not unlike an unboxing. And so, right. yes, if, if you are listening to this and have not listened uh, to part one, you might want to do that. Maybe you only care about engaging and sustaining and not at all about uh, exploring and creating. And, and so you're only here. That, that's fine. You'll dismiss our conversation about user interface and, <laughs> and some of the, the higher level stuff about this this revision of Canada Council structures. But it did seem, once we had hit the hour plus mark, that perhaps perhaps we should break the conversation into into two parts. Absolutely. And, you know, there's enough to talk about. Because, you know, we were discussing how in the Explore and Create section that that was something that was um, something that, you know, you... Jacob, as uh, uh, an artist, and an artist who runs an artist-driven company mm-hmm. would be focused on, and um, <clears throat> I'll say that Engage and Sustain, which is primarily about core funding for organizations, is probably where where myself is, at least with my executive director hat on, will spend a fair amount of time in Engage and Sustain. So, uh, yeah, so it's interesting for me to take a look at this and um, and take a look at the two different um, distinctions or components mm-hmm. um, that are made um, in terms of core funding. I mean, there's a third, which we discussed in part right. one, which is about um, sort of, what is it called? Artist-driven. Artist yeah. um, is, is the term that they're using, artist-driven companies, which allows for core funding by those organizations. And then there are artistic catalysts and artistic institutions. Yep. So um, <clears throat> catalyst, of course, is a much uh, sexier way of describing yeah. oneself than institution. <laughs> if, if we're on the dating profile. If we're on we the dating profile thing, I'd be like, well, I guess I'm an institution. Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting question, even in terms of ATP. Like, I think there's an oh. argument that ATP, despite qualifying as an institution, could be a catalyst. And again, that's those questions of how much are we allowed to self-identify, I think will... Yeah. It will emerge, but yeah. this is... And, and that's that's the thing, you know, um, the so the, arti- the artist... Dri- and again, the, the sizes of the budgets are 
drastically different, right? And, yep. the, and what they've done here is you can apply for up to a percentage of your revenues. Yeah. Um, averaged over three years. And that's in, I think, all three cases. Yes. Yeah. Um, so in the artist-driven, it's you can apply for up to 60% of your revenues. In artistic catalysts, you can apply for up to 50% of your revenues. And in artistic institutions, you can apply for up to 25%. Um, which is which makes sense. Like I, I get it. I get it. Um, but it is that's interesting as well, um, in terms of what distinction you might want to make for yourself if you have a bit of both. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, for artistic catalysts, the the way that they phrase the eligible applicants, organizations that have an ongoing contribution to artistic practice and strengthen the cultural life of communities. So. Eligible activities or programming, public outreach, and support of artistic practice or the arts sector. So that's interesting because you know again this is we can we will talk about them each, but um, I think for distinctions for for the for the comparative, the artistic institutions, organizations with an annual with annual revenues of more than two million that focus on artistic leadership and civic responsibility. So. That is an an, an interesting distinction, and especially for, you know, being at ATP, we have a budget of more than $2 million. Yeah. So by definition, I guess we're not catalysts. Well. Or are we? That's, that's, I think, that question is, can you say, despite qualifying as an institution, Mm -hmm. right, the artistic catalyst eligibility does not say, for example, organizations that have a budget of under $2 million a year and are focused on mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. Uh, and so could I be a, a $10 million artistic catalyst? Right? Like, yeah. is that... That, I think, becomes some of, of the question. And, and yeah, and this difference between what is it to strengthen the cultural life of a community... As and, opposed to uh, focus on civic responsibility. Civic responsibility. Yeah. Are, are interesting. And, and, you know just to flag for the, the Toronto readers, you know, that the amount that, like, Soul Pepper is now describing itself as a national civic organization, which makes me want to do a little bit of dramaturgical work on the... Fascinating. The, the I didn't... I had never terms. seen that. Yeah. Of course, I'm outside of Toronto, so yeah. I would well, like, I mean, I only... Then, which means I pay a bit of attention... A bit of attention <laughs> to Soul Pepper, but not as much as everybody there does, which, again, no. makes me wonder about... Whether they're a national, national civic, well, they're doing all these touring things, and I, yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. But I think this thing of civic, it's it's just the emergence of a reemergence of a key a key word, right? Like in yeah, some ways of like oh, you know, and that's different than, and or is it different than sort of civil society, which is yeah, um, which is a term that gets used a lot in international development and is. Mm-hmm. the sector of NGOs. <laughs> One thing I do appreciate about all of these yeah. is that there's um, up to 56, 20, up to 25, 50, or 60%. Yeah. There's, um, and that it's uh, on revenues, which I think is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, what it, I think what it allows for is some, um, some shift. Yeah. Right? It allows, because what, I think what used to happen was you got, a, you got, the grant you got, yeah. and um, 
you you know things were either frozen or not frozen or right. you know whereas this feels like when you apply every mm. few mm-hmm. years you can apply right. for that there's there's uh, there's options right we used to be a <clears throat> But, it, Again, I don't know but you're not automatically be. getting 50 or 60% of your revenues, but there's an option for you to ask more mm-hmm. if you have, if you find yourself coming more on board in terms of, you know, doing something uh, new with your artistic practice or doing something that's, you know, um, focusing more on strength. If you're, if you have something that you want to develop, that's about um, really playing to a strength and strengthening the cultural life of communities, you can actually apply and have that supported a mm-hmm. bit more than if you're, you know, you, you can be doing the same, if you do, basically I think if you're doing the same thing, um, you'll probably mm-hmm. get about the same grant, but there's the opportunity for you to be resilient yeah. in that <laughs> when you have, when there's some flexibility or elasticity somewhere, you can apply mm-hmm. to allow yourself to play more to a strength. Yeah. And I, I, at least and, that's the way I'm interpreting it, and I think that's great. And even, you know, moving around and, and trying not to think of these things on a, a hierarchical ladder, right? But that I could, a company could go from being an artistic catalyst to an artist-driven also, right? That that, you know, thinking of dance makers in particular, where I feel like at different places it's been different things in that under mm, different leadership. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially, I think, in the transition from Serge, who who maybe was more catalyst, although, no, I mean, it was mostly, it's a driven company. But I think that ability to shift, the other big difference between, that I flagged between the Engage and Sustain grants and those two core fundings and the core funding in in for artist-driven is that artist-driven companies had, don't have this in their engagement uh criteria, uh, and it's the fifth thing listed, uh, commitment to reflecting through artistic programming, organizational makeup, and development of your publics. Oh, there's a plural public. Okay. Um, the diversity of your organization's geographic community or region, particular with regards to the inclusion and engagement of Aboriginal people, culturally diverse groups, people who are deaf or have disabilities, and the official language minority communities. Yes. That's interesting, and it's in, it's in Catalyst. It's in Catalyst. And it's also in uh, institutions. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, has been part of the discussion for a while. And I think what, you know, what's valuable is that they're saying of, of the, of a commitment your to, of your publics. Um, so recognizing in this case that there's more than one public, but also that um, it will depend on the makeup of whatever community you're in. Yeah. And what... What I think is interesting in terms of how companies will deal with this or what we need to deal with mm-hmm. this effectively is a sense, uh, uh, you know, a sense of what our public is in each community, mm-hmm. right? And um, in and a commitment to reflecting and what that commitment looks like has a myriad of mm-hmm. possibilities. Um and each community will be different. I think each company 
catalyst institution or, you know, or, you know, either one, we'll have to understand, we'll have to, it, it forces us to be more than, um, more than passive about our understanding of what, who, where we are. Yeah. And there are some companies that I think are deeply, deeply, um, uh, have a deep understanding mm-hmm. of their community. Um, and there are some that have less of, of that. Yeah. And um, it forces everyone to do some research yeah. about their community. And it's interesting because we, like ATP, um, some of this language in terms of reflecting our community in all its diversity is mm-hmm. in our strategic plan. Right. And uh, it's been very valuable for us to um, grapple with that to a degree because uh, we would like it to be, but that has forced us to really think about what we actually know about our community. Mm-hmm. What are the demographics? Um, what does it mean? Because I can be part of my community, but particularly as an institution, um, I have a, you know, and indeed it, there's even a reference in institutions and we'll get to it too, your building, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, depending on where your building is, um, your ability to access the publics mm-hmm. and what that, how that might change mm-hmm. some of the mm-hmm. way you think about your activities mm-hmm. um, and the access people have to your activities is um, really intriguing. Um, but it does, it does force us to really understand. And then I, and then I wonder what, what information is being shared with juries or program officers? Because juries will come from all sorts of places, but um, the juries will be national. However, um, a jury that doesn't have someone from Halifax assessing whether or not we're there, the, a company from Halifax is accurately reflecting, or, or mm-hmm. not accurately, but committed to reflecting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually see. yeah this, it's not actually... It's not about accuracy. It's not about to, accuracy. It mean you have to succeed in reflecting. You just yeah. have to be committed. Yeah, so if you are committed to reflecting, you know, is it the company's responsibility of, ex- of making that connection? Mm-hmm. Or are we getting information about the, what the community looks like in Halifax in order to judge that commitment? I'm just curious about, about um, again, just because there isn't an answer for it doesn't mean it, we shouldn't try it. Yeah. But um, it's a, it is something that I'm curious about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, I've got a, an unposted blog post because it is a series of internet comments that I don't necessarily want, but I'll, I'll invite here on the podcast, uh, where, a, a, you know, what would radical positionality look like. So, uh, where historically, um, you know, groups that aren't mainstream, so white Western based are asked to declare, there's some checkbox that is like, are you one of these things? Like there's, there's a, an, a request for positionality from, Mm. uh, especially I'm trying to think, I guess not actually in the Canada council. Um, but at the Toronto Arts Council, certainly, and in Ontario Arts Council. Uh, and so folks, historically marginalized folks, are usually required to position themselves. And then the historically oh. dominant groups have no requirement to position themselves. Right. Because they're universal. Um, right. which, which actually just means white and probably male. Uh, 
historically. So, so how do you, in grant funding, request for radical positionality in which a theater company could say, or I don't know, sort of do it for myself so as not to diss other people, um, but to, to admit that Small Wood Institute comes from like a Western itinerant theater tradition, right, and, and a certain avant-garde tradition that goes through Germany and the UK and New York and Cape Breton. Um, mm-hmm. It meets lots of people. It intersects with lots of oral culture and directly dressed storytelling um, that that I've seen from indigenous cultures. I'm like, oh, this this feels more alike to me than than the new production of an Ibsen show. Um, but I could I could construct a position for my work that acknowledges its historical place um, and its position in Toronto, seeks to, you know, is not trying to be excluded. It's not only German descended people can watch, but to acknowledge that I have a tradition, that I come from somewhere. And again, that I feel like a lot of, like Western mainstream companies, we don't have to, one of the privileges is not needing to position yourself all the time. and one of one of the oppressions, one of the microviolences, is constantly needing to position oneself and declare what side one's on. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a way in which I'd be interesting if 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 everyone had to do that. Um, and then I imagine it being sent to like a jury from somewhere else, like not the arts jury, and you know, and and any use of the word universal will rule you out of, <laughs> <laughs> of eligibility. And, right. you know, uh, I can imagine lots of, lots of fun games to play with that. But, but I think there is a, a thing for companies and especially, I, I think this is interesting around what, what it is to engage and sustain and be this sort of arts leader stuff to need to reflect or to think about that. The other thing, too, is <clears throat> that when we look at the definitions of certain words, again, so reflective, uh, committee, a commitment to reflecting through artistic programming, organizational makeup and development of your publics, um, and also the, the, the statement in the institution section about um, civic responsibility, mm-hmm the cultural life of communities in Catalyst Mm -hmm. and civic responsibility in institutions. Civic, by definition, is very much related to, you know, city, town, local area. Mm -hmm. And community Mm -hmm. suggests Mm -hmm. a community that is more um, local or has a a relationship to... Or, or, you know, community can be about... um, uh, we all know community has a broader definition yeah. than the the community you live in, yeah. and you can live in a lot of different ways. But but in terms of place, mm-hmm. um, that's to me kind of seems like it, it's what it's suggesting. Right. At least that's the connotation on it. Mm-hmm. But um, for companies that speak to a particular that are identity based, perhaps, mm-hmm. or companies that that. Um, consider themselves to be a company with a national uh, mandate, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things that's interesting about the way that ATP sometimes thinks about itself, Mm -hmm. um, or often thinks about itself, is is that we're a national leader in new play development. Um, 
what what does it mean to what does it mean to um, have a, a larger relationship to a larger space, mm-hmm. um, or a relationship to a sense of identity, and mm-hmm. what does that mean for community and civics? Right. I'm just curious about about that and whether you know whether the what what that means for companies in terms of you know their whether or not every company is really considering itself in relationship to place. Right. Which is what this, which, which again, maybe it's just a connotation mm-hmm. on these words, but it's certainly something that I'm getting. But I do think it's interesting, and I'm, you know, in thinking about those two words, communities versus civic, that so buddies in bad times or native earth, um, for example, can talk about the cultural life of a community. Like, so buddies can talk about the cultural life yeah, of, that's of was, a that's, queer community. That's kind of who I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. those guys. And so they can, they can, one, be like everybody in the GTA or everybody in Ontario. Like we are, you know, they are the, whatever, the world's largest, North America's largest queer theater. They have some category. I think they it's the world's, yeah. Um, so they can talk about that they're strengthening the cultural life of their community that they serve. And that community is partially located in Toronto, but not only. Right, mm-hmm. it's their like like to say the indigenous community that Native Earth serves is not just the Toronto indigenous community, but a broader indigenous community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think you could also, or I would want people to be able to talk about communities of practice potentially also, or communities uh-huh. of, you know, uh, the furries are a community that are not geographically located. So if I was you know, whether, anyways, whether or not I'm going to start a theater company aimed primarily at furries is a different conversation, but that's not necessarily geographically located. Um, although, again, the diverse, but then I, there is programming that asks me later, right, to reflect the geographic community or region in the engagement part. So, so I think that's an interesting mix. I mean, I think, and I think again, buddies could say, yes, we, we think about the global queer community, but we are rooted in the Toronto queer community, mm-hmm. particularly like the church in Wellesley, Wellesley, like, or not community. Um, the other thing in here I think is really interesting is organizational makeup. I mean, this is this is them responding to a lot of people saying over the years that like nothing was going to change unless the councils forced change. Yeah. Right inside companies. So organizational makeup means that it's not okay to just have, you know, a regular appearance of a non-white actor, right? Or like it's not only it's not only about casting and the arts, right? It's also about your board and about mm-hmm. your staff. Yeah. Uh, and these are really, I think this is actually that's to me where there's a lot of power in in change, right? Is how do you get it so that it's impossible for CanStage to release a press release that doesn't include any like that only has white creators and not have somebody in the it's not even that that programming choice shouldn't be made that's a different debate but the the debate that really needs to be had in terms of how things like that incident got tracked is is there nobody in that organization who knew that that was coming that you released that press release and that wasn't going to be backlash and that 
like that it was you know it it didn't feel like it had been thought of like even the crisis management how do we answer this question um and that you know we were you know that they were releasing something in the middle of oscars so white they were like there was all this stuff very live in in toronto at least in the social media of toronto centrality to everything i know um but that there's nobody with the power at some point to say, hey, what are we going to do when people say this? Mm-hmm. Or how are we going to write this release so that the other things that we think we're doing that we're really good about are talked about and we you know, focus on those performers who we think over whatever the... Mm-hmm. Whatever the strategy, but that there's actually nobody in the decision-making process who feels like who can raise that issue because you know it seemed like they were taken by surprise and that's crazy uh so so how when you shift your organization inside and who and who and how can feedback come that that i think it will shift programming because it will shift curiosities um or add curiosities but i think it is also a strength in that it means that somebody who has a different point of view might actually look at a press release or look at a, a season announcement or a season lineup and say, um, actually, uh, Mr. or Mrs. AD, like, what are you going to do when, when the globe tries to get a quote out of you, like about diversity? Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me, too. I I just want to talk a bit about Mm -hmm. organizational makeup. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, programming is is one aspect of it. And I think that the the inclusion of organizational makeup, Mm -hmm. which is about um, the structure of who's making decisions. Mm -hmm. um, And that is interesting to me. And I'm, I'm curious because when I look at... Particularly, you know, when we talk about, um, and, and it's in institutions very clearly, let me see here, it might actually be, this is interesting, it's in institutions but not in Catalyst, <laughs> mm-hmm. is the, the statement about um, uh, succession and recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, your approach to human resources as well as succession and recruitment. Right, is a resilience factor. It's on... a resilience factor in institutions, not in Catalyst, but in institutions. And um, and it's inter- what's interesting to me about that is um, part of what part of what we're trying to what what we're trying to create here. It seems like we're trying to create here is um, a sense of you know not just what's on the stage but also what's who's making decisions. Mm-hmm. And and I'm you know from a succession and recruitment select um, uh, I, I'm <laughs> so there's been a few changes in artistic leadership in a few companies this summer. Yes. And um, there, there's some some great artists, um, but some artists who look a lot alike mm-hmm. in some in some ways. And I'm <clears throat> I'm curious about, uh, particularly in institutions, who's applying for those jobs at institutions. Mm-hmm. And part of it's because. Um, <laughs> Um, the, 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 we, we slow down when things become too real. The structure, I don't know how appealing 
the structure of the institution is to people who are not already in the institution. Um, like, so this, there's, you know, the word succession um, has come up a lot. And it's it was something that was talked about at the PACT conference. We talk about it at the Professional Association of Canadian Theatres conference. So there's a lot of different conferences that, you know, we're talking Capicola, about succession. The Canadian Capicola. associations of presenting associations of Canadian in a different language. Yeah, everyone is obsessed with succession planning. And it's um, it's because it, it seems like, particularly from an organization, and this is, this is artistic leadership, but there's also organizational leadership, right? And I just, I, I wonder, as somebody who leads an organization and is having a human experience of that, um, you know, you can teach someone as much as you want about... Um, the, about bookkeeping and about um, grant writing or even about development best practices, um, <clears throat> human resources best practices. Um, however, running these things is very difficult mm-hmm. and um, and also doesn't allow for as much flexibility and creativity as one might hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if... <laughs> Who, who would you know? You can teach people all you want, but but making these jobs attractive is a whole other ball of wax. Particularly if somebody doesn't, someone works already works outside of the norm. Um, the concept that you could go in and switch a bunch of things up, or make it, or or make a bunch of change, institutions at a certain level, um, they shouldn't be so difficult to change, but they are. Mm-hmm. So when do we, when, you know, how does, how do things fundamentally shift within those institutions for allow to, that allow there to be a sense of creativity mm-hmm. or a sense of, a sense of that you could change the system? Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't know that there's, I don't know that, that any of the structures that are set up to support institutions as much as everyone's keeps saying they want this to happen, actually would allow for somebody with a different sense of being and than than already exists in that in that structure to want to go into that structure. Yeah. And so um, I think it's great to talk about um, reflecting things through the organizational makeup in an institution or, for that matter, in a catalyst. Um, but. <laughs> I just, I just, I wonder, I wonder how many people are applying for these jobs at institutions um, that come from a different background of art making, come from a different background culturally, um, you know, or for that matter, women with children yeah. or who want to have children one day, you know, because the, let's face it, the structure is not set up to make that very pleasant. Um, or or sustainable or realistic or resilient or whatever word you want to talk about right now. Um, <clears throat> how res- you know the the I just I want I think that's great. I just want to know when they're asking us about our approach to human resources as well as succession and recruitment and our overall ability to manage risk. Um, I wonder what approach what approach is the right approach or what mm-hmm. approach is the best approach and what what are they looking for 
Um, well, that potential to flip that, right? So succession is so often talked about in the way that you just sort of did, which is like, how do we get people who can do the job that already exists? And that's mm-hmm. how we're going to deal with our succession problem, yeah. is we're going to train and recruit more people who want the job. Um, and if they don't want the job, then they are the fault. Whereas I think even in, say, say the tech sector, which I nerd out about, so I know a lot about, um, I don't think it's the best thing in the world, that's obviously true, uh, but the recruitment problems there are, you know, are so vast, right, that Apple can't recruit enough good engineers that they want, right? Like that, Apple has all the money in the world to throw at this problem, and they still have a problem because if you really love working on great cloud solutions, Apple's a shitty place to work, right? right? Because they're not very good at that. Mm-hmm. If you want to be 1.0 and launch and you care a lot about a certain kind of user interface, Apple's a cool place to work. And so they've had, you know, so in that case, I just know, like, they have a problem recruiting the, because they the best engineers for cloud stuff go to Google, because Google's doing the cool stuff there. Yeah. Um, and, but all that to say that the recruitment problem is not seen as a, like, a problem of the engineers, but a problem of the company. And so if you can't get, if you're not recruiting, if you're not getting succession, it's not change the applicants, it's change the job. Yeah. Right. So one way to think about a an approach to human resources and succession and recruitment is how do we change our structure in order that the best people, the best theater people in the world want to work at our theater company. Right. Like that's a different goal than how do we train my assistant to one day take over my job. But how do I make my job? How do I make working here so good that I will I will get the best successors and the best humans to come work for me. But that is a thing that involves being willing to like radically change the structures. And there's so, you know, and, and I can hear you now. I know you don't have enough money to do this. I know you don't have risk capital. I know there's no, mm-hmm. you know, what about Jim and he's going to lose his job down at accounting and he's been doing it the same way. Um, and so all of those are true. Uh, but also I think that that, that in the conversation of succession in the arts in Canada right now, I mean, I think ATP is probably seen as a better case than a number of the things that would fit under artistic institutions for like, as a young maker who does think about the theater in context and the arts in context and in community, do I want to go to one of those places, right? Do I want to find a, a regional or a, a local present, you know, the no offense Oshawa Center for the Arts, but, you know, and do I want to take over? Do I, when that job comes up, am I qualified and do I want it? You're never going to get a job at Oshawa now. I'm never going to get a job there now. Uh, now that they know. So there's lots of reasons that I don't want that job, only a few of which include like lacks of, lack of competencies on my part. <laughs> like, there are lack of competencies on my part that that would mean that a board would be less likely to hire me. Well, the board. There's a there's a whole. Yeah. I, let me get, let me get on yeah. that tangent. Um, so okay. So in terms of our human resources practice practices and succession and um, uh, succession and recruitment. Yeah. And ability to manage risk. I feel like <clears throat> a lot of that has to do with the leadership of the organization and how we allow for 
whatever change we can make within the organizations that we lead. Mm -hmm. However, um, the, I think, and I, I've, and there is, there are opportunities for leaders of organizations to change things. However, the people who hire the leaders mm -hmm. are boards of directors. Yeah. And even if the, the boards of directors have a level of diversity on them, mm -hmm. they don't know the structure. Yeah. Or they, they know the structure, but only a bit, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of asking the people who are hiring the leaders to think about, um, like, think about new ways to structure positions... Mm -hmm. I don't know if they can do that. They're volunteers. I mean, that's that maybe I'm, maybe that's a lack of imagination on my part, and I certainly don't mean to disrespect anyone who is a board member who feels they have a strong sense of the organization. But I think it's kind of it's it's up to the leaders to propose things to the boards mm -hmm. about how things move forward. But when the leaders haven't necessarily done that, like what is the is a how aware is a board going to be about a level of adaptive change or, or diversity in the environment that is the sector to allow for that sort of change to the job itself? And, you know, a great example is, do artistic directors always have to direct plays? Yeah. Um, yes. In theory, like, a, you know, what is an artistic director there to do? Um well, the artistic director can direct plays, but they're but they're there to program and apparently engage, yeah. <laughs> engage yeah. engage community and um, have civic responsibility. Yeah. So so great. And to be to be deep and broad. Deep and broad. So the the concept of directing directing plays is very it's it's important. But the the reason that it happens is because. That's why a lot of artist, a lot of artistic directors, are interested in directing plays, and they get a chance to direct plays that they want to direct, as artistic directors, and also, they, 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 the company saves some money yeah. if they direct some plays. So, you know, what is the what is the impetus for, you know, from a board's perspective? It's like, say twenty G's a year. Make them direct a few plays. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or um, that's what they want to do. Yeah, um, that's so how we keep them. That's right? how we I mean, keep they, them. That's I think that's a lot of it. Right? Is yeah. at certain points, is ads would leave if they you know, some ads would leave if they didn't get into the room. Yeah, if they weren't allowed into the room. And the, the ads that, that want to create the potential ads that want to just create the right circumstances yeah. for other people to do the work and spend a lot of time with the public. That's not something that's really been thought about, or is it's you know, or or it appears to be a, uh, a potential detriment to the budget. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you know, I, I'm curious about um, what interface. The, the the impetus has always been. It seems like to have the interface with the leaders yeah. on things like this on sectoral change. And there's sometimes attempts to bring the board the boards into it, mm -hmm. but even so, the structure that supports, you know, a board of directors deep dive into this. Mm -hmm. There's so few board chairs and boards who have the time to jump or into or the skill set, um, or the the background of experience mm -hmm. to to dive into this. 
that I, it makes me wonder whether just it feels like th- this might be baby steps until there's an mm-hmm. opportunity to really um, and I, I keep wondering so who who is the who are the magic bullet type of people that I would put on my board mm-hmm. to allow for this or in your recruitment committee right like so yeah, so you know as another way to solve this problem is that you say okay my associate dramaturg who's been here for two years they're on the recruitment committee my you know so there's a board you know that there's mm, there's you know true. this actor who has worked with us regularly for 40 years is on my selection co- like yeah. that that that's where the creativity about you know I, I'm horrified at the amount of arts organizations who replace their ADs with zero to little consultation with the staff of the organization yeah Right, like that's insane to yeah. me. Unless that AD is allowed to clean house and rehire. Yeah. Like, if, unless you're going the football mode. Yeah. Right, which is you bring in a new person and they they're gonna fire all the assistants and they're gonna bring in their people and they're you know over two years there's gonna be hundred percent turnover in your staffing. Yeah. Because because you're you're centering it around the person in that role. If that's not what you're going to do. And if there is a culture that you want to continue in the organization, if the culture's yeah. going well, um, and maybe even especially if it's not, how how then do you instead of you know your expensive headhunter who just does this for every organization or and you know is totally corporate in their mindset? Yeah. Um, how do you make a recruitment committee that is going to pick the best person and have that person not be considered the best because their Rolodex is the biggest? Um, of of donors, right, and and or that they've shown that they can run an organization that is exactly the same previously. But how do you how do you recruit and think about succession in a complicated way that that doesn't re reinforce all of those bad habits? And I also think that it's it's that we've in theater especially, and again we're we're wandering deep in just into the theater realm, but probably has some has some connections um is that we've we've been told that boards of directors is the right place to do fundraising and that's that's an assumption that i don't that i don't hear questioned enough yeah because what it means is you have then a board that is determined by its financial capacity at least partially right at least that is a a thing in every time that you're like, let's recruit new board members. Part of what's going off in our brains is these are people who can raise us money. And because of the state of the world and the context we live in, that that sort of the dynamic resilience that we're talking about and people with lots of money may not line up. Or the, the people with lots of money have a different thought about what resilience is and, and what a good leadership candidate needs. So finding the way, and that's a that's a big for me board question, and it's also why I'm I'm back in component one, right? Like why I'm in the create and explore, wanting an artist run board is I'll deal with those stresses differently than 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 the other ones. Yeah, I gotta say too. I mean, I feel like <clears throat> the concept of people who have money. Um, mm-hmm. That there's this like um, there's this list of people who have money and 
you just need to find some people who have money and um, they're going to like just go, oh yeah, here's a check. Um, or here's a check and we get all my friends to give you a check. Um, the reality of it is that that maybe mid, mid 20th century, that was a real thing mm-hmm. when all of this sort of started. Yeah. Um, but now uh, it's a it's a different it's a different world mm-hmm. um, in terms of um, how much how how much money everyone has, but also um, how people think about where they put their money. Yeah. And um, and like the corporate landscape in Calgary anyway, feels like it changed overnight and it's not going to come back to the same place it was. Nor, you know, nor has it, I mean, there's been larger, longer shifts, you know, throughout about the way people think about, the way corporations think about their names, but also in the way that um, individuals think about their charitable giving. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the number of the number of places where there's um, urgent need constantly in front of in front of people. So uh, it's, but the, our structures are still based on that idea, mm-hmm. and the the that's difficult. It's difficult to think that way. And then also, when there isn't enough money and the board is still responsible, ultimately, yeah. right? Then they get nervous about whether or not the money's coming, and then there's a then the then the leadership looks back at them and goes, "Well, where's well you were supposed to bring in the money? Yeah. Well, you were supposed to bring in the money. Yeah. Well, you were supposed to bring in the money. Hold on, who's bringing in the money? Um, yeah. The that and then and, and and everybody's bringing in the money and who's making the art or going out into the communities to find new audience. Yeah, absolutely, and that and a board board member as ambassador, mm-hmm. board member as um, a, com, a community representative mm-hmm. who feeds back on the on the work of the organization yeah. and the plans of the and the the, the organizational vision yeah. and artistic vision, that's valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the money thing is, is I agree has trapped us in a certain way of thinking about board members. Um, ATP's board has shifted their position, but but when I first started, you know, there was this thing, an unwritten sort of, an unwritten assumption that I was able to surface that we shouldn't interview board members who were under 30. Right. Not because we hate young people, but because there was this perception that they weren't, they maybe weren't necessarily um, as settled in their lives to... Um, you know, commit a certain amount of time or a certain um, a certain you know financial obligation to even just even buy a subscription yeah. and that kind of thing. But <clears throat> that assumption was surfaced and then seemed silly. Like, thank God it was mm-hmm. because we've moved on from it, and um, and that's not as big a, a factor. And indeed, you know, I have board members in their twenties and board members in their fifties. Whose lives have been upended and changed, yeah, right. and they the have they have or haven't been able to. Yeah, the idea of, a, of of some level of stability is is a is just sort of funny as well. So I, I feel like there's there are so many things about that, and I don't know who's questioning who's questioning the board structure, and whose responsibility is it? 
I don't know if it's the Canada Councils. I'm just bringing it up. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, because, you know, I feel like there's a lot of public funders who are, are trying to um, suggest that resiliency or adaptive change is important. Yeah. And a level of elasticity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we're talking about a range of different structures, we need to talk about the board structure. But nobody, there's no, nobody necessarily has the power to deal with that structure. Yeah, because they're your boss. Like, they're, yeah, they're my boss. But also, is it the you know? So if it's not me mm-hmm. as the leader of the organization, yeah. who in the universe who's asking us to think about things differently is the one that has to talk to the board about that? Yeah. And so, uh, who is it? Um, so if anybody has an answer, let me know. But but I would love for I would love for there to be. Um, some conversation at some point amongst public funders and boards, or some question, some question somewhere at somebody's conference um, about about the board structure, um, and whether or not that structure needs to be considered as well, or what what we actually think boards need to be in this day and age, mm-hmm. and um, so that everyone's on the same page. And then and we're also back to a similar problem of the succession where yeah, how those questions are being asked and and the assumption of best practices. And so Yeah. At the inside the indigenous leadership and management program at, at Banff, they've they've done a lot of work to shift language from best practices to wise practices. Um, and wise practices being that those that are sort of appropriate contextually also. So that something that's a wise practice in a snowstorm may not be a <laughs> wise practice in a, in, in a desert or whatever. Right. Right. So yeah. that, that when we think about when we enforce best practices, so best practices, I think is a better useful term than the right way to do things. I think it implies that like, it's not a perfect practice, like a, you know. It's it. Well, best is pretty good, but uh, better, you know, better practices. I mean, I'm in favor of thinking about like what has worked in the past and how does that, and how might we learn from that. I think that's an important thing. Uh, but it is also that once you can't you start, go too far back. You can't go too far back because or you have because, to go even further back. Sure, I think that you know. I think not unlike going back to the source of a word's definition. Yeah, it can be very helpful. But in terms of um, in terms of of going too far back, there's a certain point at which I go, the world was different then, yeah. and or so the best practices that worked then don't. So how far back is the best best practice? Yeah, and the wise practice <clears throat> at its best to me um, is also like definitions of contemporary when it's a wise practice is the suitable practice for its time, no matter from where it came. Right. So, uh, sitting around circles, having hard conversations, old tradition, really old. Right. And, and somewhere along the line, the best practice was no, everybody should sit in one direction and there should be a person with a PowerPoint presentation at the front and they should talk. And at best, those people then all facing that one person should ask some questions and the person at the front should answer them expertly in a way that shows mastery. 
mm-hmm. and and then a decision should be made uh, through private voting, right? Like that that became a best practice when for a long time the practice of we should sit around in a circle and have meaningful conversations until we have a way to move is another best practice for a different situation. And so what is the wise practice at which moment, right? You know, what is, could mean going back. I mean, we, we, in the work with new fundamentals at Banff, you know, that word, the the newness becomes a thing where even to talk about new and old systems, that if we talk about status quo and emergent, that, that makes me happier because an emergent system can include things from the old, right? It's not, it's not about invention. It's not, mm, yes. it's not about what's the novel solution to this. It's what's the appropriate, which is also another, like I will again, so resilience in, in these definitions. One of the last ones is, uh, is financial. It is the last one. It's not even one of the last ones, uh, financial health and effective financial problem planning, including efficient use of resources. Uh, Another another language shift that I would love to change, and we can we can go on to this to talk about public venues, uh, but is is effective versus efficient. So uh, there's lots of things that might be efficient but aren't necessarily the most effective, and there's the things that might be inefficient but extremely effective. So again, to go back to my circle, the dude at the front of the room with PowerPoint. That dude in front of the room in PowerPoint, super efficient, right? Like there's one idea, it gets expressed clearly. Everybody agrees to it because otherwise they're fired and out we go. Um, Super efficient. Great use of resources. Um, Other than now, you should just make a video of that PowerPoint and send the video around. Uh, But Yeah, why spend the travel funds on it? Why spend the travel funds? Um, Why see each other face-to-face? That's inefficient. Versus an effective, which may mean now we have to sit in a circle and this conversation is going to take a bunch longer, but it's going to be an effective governance strategy, even though it's deeply inefficient. And and I think in the arts, it's a big, this is a big distinction that's important to make because I think the arts, making art is inefficient, right? Like it is an inefficient activity. It is not, <laughs> like I am not when I'm directing a play or thinking of a project, I'm, I'm thinking of effectiveness, I'm thinking of use, I'm thinking of what better question am I hunting for? I'm thinking of lots of things. Yeah. And in some of the planning, in moments of it, efficiency is comes to the top mm-hmm. and is the most important thing. But in lots of other places, it might be more helpful for me to think about effectiveness and what is the most effective thing to do here, even if it's not the most efficient. And for that matter, too, I mean, the definition of financial health. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, what, is that, what, is it, what does that mean? What does it mean for different... I mean, over two million... So th- in, in one case, in one mm-hmm. of these cases, it says over a budget over $2 million. Yeah. F- financial health for a $2 million company and financial health for a $12 million company yeah. look a lot different. And so I appreciate... That there's that the definition can can be different, and what is effective financial planning for one may not be for the other, um, and efficient use of resources as well, for that matter. So I, I'm I'm I appreciate I appreciate that on, on a lot of levels, but um, th- it also suggests that there is an answer to that. Right. 
which I guess would mean uh, surplus or balanced budgets, which would probably mean some form of... percentage of mm -hmm. deficit annual budget going to deficit. Yeah, a deficit reduction or um, a working capital reserve and those kind of things. So that's great. Um, In moments, because one needs to be resilient, Mm -hmm. um, when when there are new forces at work, um, does the, you know... We're not necessarily. I'm hoping we're not necessarily looking. We're looking for that that sense of financial health or financial planning to be the same over many years, but more resilient and elastic. In that, <clears throat> you know, as long as you have a plan to right. try to maintain some viability, yeah. um, it can look a lot different. Yeah, and I think it's you know the it's another thing that I noticed a shift right. So core institutions again, the big two millions. That's every four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, catalyst is every two. Yeah. So, like, I think that's a an interesting and important distinction mm-hmm. of, you know, again, the assumption being that an institution will will last is not is not in a two year cycle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And strategies for maintaining your public venue, the <laughs> venue or venues, yeah, um, is in the institution section as well. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Um, it's uh, who's it? Yeah, venues. Who's who's whose responsibility is our venue? Is venues? Um, and does does that insinuate that um, the strategy for maintaining our public venue would be um, supported more or less? By this kind of grant, I don't know because I'm trying to remember right. whether the venues ever came up previously. Mm. The fact that venues are even coming up here—I mean—and again, I, I, this is something that I now wish I would have researched the difference on—is mm-hmm. whether or not venues were even mentioned previously in the operating, in the operating grants. Um, because acknowledging, because venues are, are by, f- by far one of the, the most difficult things <laughs> that affect your resilience, quite frankly. And so I appreciate that they're in there, but I'm, it's, an, it's an interesting in- inclusion of something that I, um, that acknowledges mm-hmm. the importance of that in terms of anyone's resilience. And I think I wonder if, you know, if, for example, I, you know, I ran, uh, an above $2 million theater company uh, who had a venue and I wanted to bail on it, is that another reason why I would move to Catalyst? Like, to be, you know, I think of a bunch of Toronto companies who potentially at best should ditch their venue, right? Like, what might it be to just be like, okay, we, like, the maintenance of this venue is taking up too much of our... Uh, resources, whether emotional, intellectual, staff, or financial, and and we don't think it's serving the greater like it's not civically responsibility for us to manage this thing anymore, and we are better able to serve our civic purpose as a a company that doesn't manage a big venue. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, a very hard shift for, you know, and I think that's where the venue space is where a lot of people get into the too big to fail questions, which I think are problematic. I mean, I think there's, it's interesting, a bunch of company, a lot of the venues in Toronto 
the kind of mid-sized would not qualify for institution funding, but have venues. So mm. Buddies, Factory, Pasmarai, Theater Center are all below two million. Yeah. And are all so deeply associated with a venue that um, that for any of those companies to say, I mean, Theater Center, it's crazy because they just got their building, but uh, to say we're not interested in our building anymore and we're gone. Yeah. And that building is going to go to, you know, the highest bidder or to some other arts organization. That is not maintaining my public venue. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, an interesting case in Calgary is that I think there's quite a few professional theater companies that don't technically own their own venue. Right. Um, HP is one of them. Right. There's a lot of. It's a, it's a, there's a there, there, well, no, there's a well, no. It's it's a public venue that is associated with right. us, but that is actually run and owned by the city of Calgary through right. Arts Commons, right? right. So <clears throat> while I am perceived, right. while while ATP is perceived to have a lot of um, sway over its venue and even how civically responsible we can make it in terms of access. Mm-hmm. Um, the the people who are actually mandated responsible for making sure there's civic access yeah. is Arts Commons. Right. And we have to, if, you know, anyone we rent to, there's a, the, the rental fees are actually set through Arts Commons. Right. And we can have a conversation with them to try to make it more. And indeed, they're committed to it, and we are too. But, but uh, you know, and then there's other, com- you know, there's other theater companies who are renting space in a large office building. Right which could get redeveloped at any minute. Right. So at a certain point there they may be <laughs> the maintenance of their the maintenance of their public venue is kind of out of their hands. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think about how I would talk about that in in a grant. Right. So you know yeah. what what I acknowledge about the public venue because you know ATP is associated with a venue mm-hmm. but my actual my actual you know I can strategize to a degree about maintaining my public venue but doesn't quite work for me. So that's right. that's something that I want to kind of explore with my program officer is how do I talk about my venue? Right. Because the, the possessive is inaccurate. Yeah. Right? Like it's not actually yours. It's not actually mine. Yeah. And strategies to maintain our place in it. Yeah. Not in something we can the talk public. About. Yeah. And I think that, that, again, that what is the position for radical change, right? Like, and are we... And I think there is a space for the Canada Council to fund basically the administration of buildings, right? For, you know, in order for me to be like, oh, I want to be a freelancer who gets to pick my buildings and be all cool, there needs to be some sort of infrastructure, right? Yeah. So that if this, if institution is, is infrastructure funding mm-hmm. at some levels, it's, you know, making sure that there are some roads and some mm-hmm. available spots. Uh, there's certainly a role for the for the council to play. I do think there's in in companies that were once artist driven became catalysts and have now turned into institutions um, have gone down that road of change. Yeah, whether or not that's a good thing or whether or not that's the best choice to make for resilience, right? Like, is there a point at which it's like, oh, I used to be like I was, I was a, I was a stock trader in the '80s, and so I bought this giant house, and then I lost all my money in the various crashes, and I 
started making terrible decisions, but the government won't let me leave this house, right, is a tortured metaphor, but also or, that point of, like, how do you move, how do you move and not, how do we do these sorts of radical changes without it being a status? Yeah, or to turn that frown upside down. Um, you were a, <laughs> let's say you, let's say you were a financial trader for a long time and you did quite well at it and um and you've decided that you'd rather be a beekeeper uh, yeah. at a high level and start a beekeeping company this is this sure. may this may go horribly wrong but um but you I feel like bees are at risk don't go anywhere near the zika cuz anyways all right um but you wanted to just you wanted to change uh m- make a different decision about how you wanted to make your living and live your life. Yeah. And um, y- you, you know, either, or, or you know, so you, ma- you made a conscious decision. Yeah. Um, you know, as long as, so you may be able to move into the catalyst from right. the institution. Yeah. Or, um, but if that, if that jeopardizes, you know, that... My that, overall that, funding. Yeah. Yeah. My overall funding, then, you know... Yeah, I'm just curious. I'm curious. It's it's an it it is an interesting it's an interesting thing to think about, and um, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see again. You know, the question the question is interesting, and until somebody decides to do that, mm-hmm. we may not know how this applies. Yeah, and that it's up to, and I feel like this is this is. What, would start us down a road that might lead to part three, but maybe that will be another time. Uh, I have significant questions still about the juries Mm. that I think a lot of, because those questions aren't questions for the council to decide. Yep. In the current system of the council, those are for peer juries to decide. Yeah. And I have some questions about the conservatism of peer juries at the moment um, in Canada. Where, where I wonder if they're more conservative than the councils are in terms of these questions, in terms of change. I think that's probably pretty accurate. Um, and, <laughs> and I have a question in some of this also, and maybe we'll just end on, on some questions going forward, but I have a question about arms length funding um, in both this, both in Canada Council and in Toronto Arts Council. Um, where there's been periods of growth due to increases in public funding. Uh, The length of the arm between the grants organization and the government that funds it seems to have been shrinking. So Mm. that the alignment between the goals of the council and the goals of the government are closer and more articulated. There are more pictures of Simone and Melanie hanging out than there were of Simone and whatever that guy from BC was. (laughs) Cultural kind of Harper. Right? So and and there's obvious reasons for this and they're good ones, potentially. Um but I do think it's a thing to watch as an artist in this, that part of what those two, those two pillars of funding, 
right? And maybe it's a baby in the bathwater thing for me. And while we while we change some things about the old system, some of the other things, you know, I would rather get rid of peer assessment than arm's length. Right? Arm's length is to me a higher priority than peer assessment. Um, because I think that's where the, the arm's length is where does this project support the stated, in this case, literally liberal, but I think that you can also be small liberal. Does this, does this, you know, does this project fulfill those political goals, political goals of appearance, um, you know, so this is how many Canada 150 grants will go to people saying that Canada is a racist country and has, like, I think there'll be some, there'll be some good token, like, criticism. But I think the encouragement is to think of projects that are cheerleading. And I think we live, potentially live in a time in which doing anything but cheerleading is seen as being a jerk, unless you're in this sort of radical activist space. Um, and that's, that's an ongoing question that I have as a maker who wants to make things that don't necessarily make Justin Trudeau happy. But those Canada one, this is the other thing too, is we could talk about new chapter, new chapter but that's a whole, we're going to have to do part three new chapter yeah. uh, on that. But I think in those instances where there's a, where there's a project, yeah. right? that is given special funding that's about celebrating the country. But is that the job of the Canada Council? Right? Like that becomes a basic question or is, you know, or what is the difference between the Canada Council grant and the Heritage Grant? Well, the Heritage Grant isn't arm's length. No, the, the Heritage Council Grant, yeah, the Canada Council one is. And, and indeed, New Chapter doesn't say anything no. about boosterism no. in its, uh, or the word celebration necessarily, I don't think, or maybe. No. Um, I'm just trying to remember, but I, yeah, I think it's a perception issue, right? Arms length is a perception, right? Which is like, oh, we're not dating. We just get seen, take, you know, we're just seen together at all the parties. Um, more metaphors gone astray. Uh, but I think it's a perception thing. And I think, you know, in Toronto, it's, it's how much does, how much do you have to align with the sort of, how much politics are the councils playing with current government? And how does that affect what, offers and asks are made of people making work. Um, and, you know, and so it's, it's, it's just a factor of when, when we get a new government, what happens, right? Like, does all this change? Do we start, how much are we responsive to governments and how much are we responsive to these professional organizations? And at least some of the good idea to me of councils is that they are separate organizations away from the government mm. and and don't have to follow government. I'm yeah, this isn't this, this is an no. interesting question. I feel like I have to let it sit. Right. If, I don't I feel like I have a response, but I don't know what it is. But I will by the next and time I don't, we talk. And I don't quite have a response. It's just it's a I just it's a thing that has continued to come up in and it is a it's almost a social media question. Like it is a question about I am now very aware of when the head of the Canada Council and the the Minister for Heritage are at the same party because there's a tweet about it, right? I, I, I didn't used to know. Yeah, we didn't used to know any of that. Yeah. <laughs> and so maybe it's, you know, nothing has changed. Um, it's just more transparent. But if that's true, then, then yeah, 
it's I think that question of the importance of arm's length is is something that I don't I hear peer peer assessment talked about more than I hear arm's length. Well, and scarcity and money come into that too, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If they've got the money, you've got to play next, and that you know, and that that question, you know, owners are going to own, and who owns it? Those are valuable questions for another day. <laughs> um, so, so let us let us know what you think. Um, any any other questions that you have, or or various things, um, send them. I'm I'm on the Twitter at Jacob Zimmer, and I am at Vicky Stroich. Um, and and this with show notes and previous episodes can be found online at smallwoodenshoe.org and just follow through to Urgy Podcast. And yeah, and and we are going to do some intensive calendar work and and get on a regular schedule. Yes. And uh, we will talk to you then, maybe about funding things and maybe about surfing and football. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.